The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I'd like to continue our thoughts on the kingdom of heaven this morning and quite a few of the passages we'd like to look at. We've already looked at a little bit in some separate messages, but we kind of brushed through them quicker than I would have preferred and I want to spend a little bit more time on some of these these passages and these prophecies that were pointing toward the establishment of what we would probably consider to be the church kingdom. Now we've looked at Certainly the eternal heaven, the, the eternal final destination for the elect, the uh, residing place of God. And then we experience that kingdom. We experience that kingdom in our hearts. The kingdom is within you, right? The kingdom is not meat and drink. It's not physical location. Uh, it's not low here. It's not low there. The kingdom is within you and it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. But as we kind of continue our line of study and our line of thinking on the kingdom of heaven, now we'd like to focus more on the church kingdom. And we want to look at the establishment of that church kingdom and and the focus of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God in the New Testament. Now, um, a couple years ago, we spent an extended, spirit, <clears throat> an extended period of time considering the church. What is the church? The ecclesia, the called out assembly of the church. And we need to make sure we have a proper understanding of what the church body is supposed to be. We don't just simply attend public worship and go to a specific uh, meeting house and going to a designated location once a week is not church. Church is a living organism. It's a body, and that body has to be functioning all the time. Otherwise, that body will be malnourished. And in like manner, as the church and the body of Christ is a 24-7 living organism, I really want us to begin to think about the church in a kingdom mindset, okay? A kingdom mindset of the kingdom of heaven because obviously this is an eternal kingdom. And we think about time, and this is way beyond my pay grade, but but time is included in eternity. God God dwells outside of time. He, he, He resides in heaven and he's an eternal God, but within eternity, he created time. That's about the best way I can put it. In in the realm of eternity and his eternal essence in heaven, in the middle of that, he created a a little speck in, in the realm of eternity that we know as time. So time is included in eternity. So obviously, if the kingdom of heaven is a little bit of heaven that is eternal, then... This kingdom is an eternal kingdom, but we experience it here in time, right? Here in time in our life that is included in the overall spectrum of eternity. <laughs> That's kind of like the Trinity. It's trying to explain the Trinity and the, the, the intersection between time and eternity. And uh, that's way beyond what I have the ability to properly, properly describe. But I want you to understand that the kingdom of heaven okay, is similar to the body of Christ that it is a 24-7, 365 perpetual, really an eternal kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom that we can lay hold on and experience here in our life of discipleship. That's some of the language that's used in the New Testament, that we can lay hold on eternal life. You can reach out and grasp a portion of, of your inheritance, an earnest of your inheritance. You can reach out and lay hold on eternal life here 
in discipleship and you primarily lay hold on eternal life in the kingdom of heaven, okay? But in the New Testament, uh, the apostles go on to expound further on the body of Christ and the church and the ecclesia and the importance of that. But Jesus' focus in his ministry in the Gospels was not on the ecclesia of the assembly of the church. He only used the term ecclesia twice in Matthew chapter 16, upon this rock I will build my church. Then Matthew chapter 18, if you have a problem, you go talk to them directly, bring two or three people with you. If you don't listen to that, bring it to the church. So there's the only two references to the church by Jesus in the Gospels. But he made over 90 references to the kingdom of God and to the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus was talking about what we would consider to be the church, how did he introduce that? He introduced that as the kingdom of God, right? Did he say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, did he say, but seek you first the church? What did Jesus say? He said, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We want to spend some time, hopefully a little bit later, looking at many parables that give us lessons about what we need to be doing in the church. And he did not say, the church is like unto a Lord who gave uh, things to his servants and went into a far land. You know some of those parables. He didn't say the church is like unto. What did he say? He said the kingdom of heaven is like unto. When he taught us to pray, he didn't say, pray for the church. What did he say? How are we supposed to pray? Thy kingdom come. You see, his ministry was focusing on the kingdom. And we need to have that kingdom mindset because the kingdom is so much bigger than the roll books of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church. The kingdom is so much bigger than our small assembly here in this physical location, the kingdom of God is so much bigger than just the local <coughs> assembly of the church. As we're going to see, the kingdom of God encompasses and consumes all nations. And isn't it amazing to think about the fact that we can experience the same type of communion and fellowship with Christ in the kingdom of heaven that people can in other states, in other countries, even on the other side of the world, they can press into the kingdom in the same way that we can press into the kingdom, okay? So I want to make sure that we're developing a kingdom mindset because the church is very important. But again, Jesus did not address the church in his ministry by that name. He addressed it as the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And we want to, hopefully, during our next message, focus on now pressing into the kingdom. He established the kingdom. It's here. During his ministry, he established it, and it will stand forever. But now it's our responsibility to be focused to seek that kingdom first and now to press into that kingdom, okay? So, I'd like to back up to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and look at King David who looked at his own house and said, I have very nice accommodations here in the king's palace in Jerusalem. And he said, the Lord deserves better than me. He, he needs a house for the Ark of the Covenant to reside in. And he had a desire to do that, but Nathan originally told him, yeah, go and do what's in your heart. But then the Lord told him that that's not my will. You've shed much blood. You're a man of war. Your son is going to preside over a kingdom of peace. Remember uh, Solomon, who was David's physical son, uh, they had tremendous prosperity in, in his natural kingdom. But I believe it's also important that during Solomon's reign, they had peace. And certainly Jesus Christ, as the king of his kingdom, is the prince of peace, right? Mm -hmm. So Nathan tells David that you're not going to build me a house. Instead, it's going to be your son that's going to build me a house. 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll pick this up here in verse 12. And when thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and I will set up thy seed after thee, 
which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. We also excuse me. We always need to be reminded that first of all, it's Christ's kingdom, just like the body, right? The head controls the body. It's Christ's body. Praise God, we are one with him. As the bride of Christ, we are one flesh with Christ, and the body, the hand does not have the right to rebel against the commands and the actions of the brain. You know what that's called? That's called a disease, isn't it? <laughs> when your head, when your hand is rebelling against the commands that come from your brain, that's caused a, a severe uh, nervous and neurological disease. So it's Christ's body. We follow the directions of the head, but certainly we always need to be reminded that it's his kingdom. We're just simply stewards and custodians of this kingdom that he saw fit to give us. Verse 13, and he shall build a house. Now Solomon, the son of, uh, the natural son of David, he built, uh, at this time, the Ark of the Covenant still resided in the tabernacle, just tents, and a very nice tent, but it wasn't a permanent location. But then Solomon was blessed to build a temple, a permanent residing place for the Ark of the Covenant. And then we fast forward to the New Testament and we're told that our bodies are the temple of God. And think about, think about that in the sense of our bodies being the temple and then what resided in the heart of the temple, in the holiest of holies. That was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Then the Ark of the Covenant pointed toward Jesus Christ, all three components of that, the law, Aaron's rod that budded, and then the jar of manna. That's all pointing toward Jesus Christ. So what was in the center of that temple? What was in the center of that temple? Well, it was Jesus, right? And what's inside the heart, the soul, the regenerated soul of the child of God? Our bodies are a temple, and what resides in the innermost part of that temple? Jesus Christ, right? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So his son, Solomon, would build a physical house pointing toward Christ, building a temple of lively stones, a temple of the church. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Skip to verse 16. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So the Jews knew a lot about this, this promise to the seed of David. They knew that uh, as it was prophesied all the way back in uh, Genesis, uh, I believe it was 49, where Jacob was blessing his sons and then he promised uh, Judah that a scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh would come, and, and Judah was connected with being a lion's whelp. Remember, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So they knew that the, that the kingly line, not only the prophecy back there of, uh, of Jacob to the descendants of Judah, uh, that Shiloh would come out of Judah, but now David is of the tribe of Judah. So they, had, they knew that the tribe of Judah was the kingly line, okay? They knew that, and they were looking for that. And they were looking for the son of David, the son of David to be the Messiah, to be the Christ, to be the uh, reestablishment, at least in their mind, the reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel. So now let's go to Daniel chapter 2. And this is where Nebuchadnezzar has seen his dream and uh, the, uh, all the false musicians, uh, or, or magicians rather, not musicians, but all the magicians and the soothsayers and the Chaldeans and all that in uh, Babylon, they're not able to uh, tell uh, Nebuchadnezzar his dream, and he's getting ready to kill everybody. And uh, Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there, uh, going to be caught in that decree, and uh, Daniel kind of pipes up and said, I'll tell you what, let me ask my Lord about it. <laughs> and uh, I can probably tell you that dream. And then the Lord opens uh, that, that wisdom to him for him to be able to, first of all, tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream, because he couldn't remember it. He was going to kill him for not telling him the dream, even though he couldn't remember it. 
And then God tells Daniel what the dream was and then tells him what it means, okay? So now here in Daniel chapter 2, we, uh, uh, Daniel is telling um, Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was. And he says, beginning in verse 32, uh, This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet uh, part of iron and part of clay. And thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron and the clay and the brass and the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and came like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away and no place was found for them and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, one good thing about the book of Daniel is he gives some of these prophecies, but then he explains quite a few of them, okay? And he explains this one. So, um, beginning in verse 38, he begins to explain this. <clears throat> Wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field and the fowls of heaven hath given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over all them. So you, Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of Babylon, you are this head of gold. So the first uh, portion of this body is the head of gold, and then after thee, which is the Medo-Persian Empire, after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and then another third kingdom of brass, which shall rule over all the earth. That's Alexander the Great and the Greeks and the Macedonians, who Alexander the Great conquered the whole world, supposedly. And then the, as the story goes, he, he cried because he couldn't conquer anything else because he conquered the whole world. That's speaking of the Greeks. And then this fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire. And this fourth kingdom, in verse 40, shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all these things as iron that breaketh all these. Um, verse 41, whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Now, we really don't have time to line all this out for you, but as you study the history of the uh, of the Roman Empire, you'll find that there came a time when it split between the Eastern and the Western Holy Roman Empire. So it went from being one to now it splits. It's following the anatomy of the body, so to say. It goes from one, and then what does it do? And as you make your way to the legs, what does it do? It splits into two kingdoms, and then as you continue to follow it, it follow it splits into ten kingdoms that are documented in history books. So this follows the Roman Empire perfectly, this anatomy of the body. But that's so important to understand the specifics of this prophecy to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this fourth kingdom that's prophesied here is the Roman Empire. And the reason that's so important is in the beginning of verse 44. And in the days of these kings, in other words, in the days of the Roman Empire, in the days of the Roman Empire, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, and it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, and the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. So he sees, going back to verse 35, he sees this stone that is cut out without hands. And this stone, Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, on this rock I will build my church, right? So this rock comes on the scene and it destroys, it consumes these worldwide kingdoms. Why has there not been another worldwide kingdom since the days of the Roman Empire? It's because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's because God has established another kingdom that has taken priority and consumed all of these other ones. And this kingdom 
And as Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It will never be destroyed. It's not going to be left to other people. It's not going to be like the, the lineage of David. David died and then Solomon took over. And then Solomon died and then Rehoboam took over. And then he messed it up and the kingdom split. This kingdom is not going to be like the kingdom of men. You see, it's not going to be left to other people. Why? Because it's ruled by an eternal king. And that's why, that's why the kingdom will stand forever is because the king who protects the kingdom and strengthens the kingdom and guides the king, the king is eternal and the king's going to live forever. Okay? That's why the kingdom is going to stand forever. Not because of the faithfulness of even the subjects. Now, we need to get up and do our duty. We need to seek the kingdom first, but the kingdom is not going to stand because of our own faithfulness. It's going to stand because God has declared that he will have a witness. He will have a witness to his glory until his second coming because he is the one that sustains his kingdom, okay? For the glory of the king. Now, make sure we don't miss this language right here, that this kingdom will consume all these other kingdoms and it will fill the whole earth. This kingdom is going to fill the whole earth. Now we make our way to the New Testament and the whole New Testament begins in Matthew chapter one. Matthew is <clears throat> written by a converted publican, a Jewish publican, and it's primarily the Jewish gospel, okay? So much of the language in the gospel of Matthew has special Jewish significance, so with Matthew being the Jewish gospel, how does the entire New Testament begin? Now, now certainly this is very important for us as New Testament Christians, but think about these Jews of the original church there in Jerusalem. They have, um, well, just remember how uh, the book of Malachi ended, okay? Uh, you have 400 silent years, and the book of Malachi ended by pointing toward Verse uh, 5 of Malachi chapter 4, probably just a page or two back from Matthew chapter 1. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and spike the earth with a curse. And then that, after that period, it was 400 silent years of, of prophecy. There was no open vision. So that was the very last Thing that God inspired to be written in his canon of scripture before the 400 silent years where there was no open vision. So now they're looking for the son of David, right? They're looking for this Elijah. Now they got confused and they, they combined them. Now Elijah, the, the fulfillment of, of Elijah right there was John the Baptist who came in the, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now the reason why that's so important is because, keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 1, but in Luke chapter 3, in Luke chapter 3, the Holy Spirit goes out of its way to give you historical markers that when you study history, you can document the exact year that John the Baptist began, began uh, his ministry, and he gives you multiple references of who was reigning at each level of government. So you can track this down. Luke chapter 3 and in verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Okay, first of all, you start with the Roman Empire. Okay. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And then, getting more local, Pontius Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate being governor over Judea. Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip, tetrarch of Itineria. Uh, and the region of Traconitus and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, and Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of the Lord came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Now, this also connects very uh, important to the prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9 that we don't have time to consider. But he goes out of his way to say, in the days of the Roman Empire, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, and that date is very important for a significant benchmark in 
the uh, beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist, he baptized Jesus. So it closely corresponds to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that corresponds very importantly to Daniel chapter 9 and an important benchmark in the prophecy of the 70 weeks, okay? But <clears throat> in the days of the Roman Empire, these Jews have been looking for the seed of David. The last thing that they were told in the Old Testament before 400 silent years is that, a, that Elijah the prophet is going to come. Well, now John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Elijah the prophet coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah, okay? The New Testament begins, and, and, what, and by the way, what was the ministry of John? You know, people were asking John, are you the Messiah? And he said, no, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm pointing towards someone else. The one that's going to come after me, I'm not even worthy to, to uh, undo the latchet of his shoe. I'm pointing toward someone else. I'm a voice that's crying in the wilderness. So now these Jews that have been uh, sitting in silence for 400 years, now all of a sudden Elijah comes, John the Baptist comes telling them about it. And how does the New Testament begin? It, it begins by saying in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, and the very first thing it says is the son of David. You see, the son of David. And then it goes and gives us the entire lineage of David through Mary, and he's born of a virgin. But then it gave the lineage of Joseph because it was as was supposed that he was... Jesus' adopted father, he was not his biological father, but he was an adopted father. But on both sides, on both Joseph's family lineage and Mary's family lineage, they both came directly through the lineage of David. Okay? So the whole New Testament begins by saying, you Jews that have been looking for the Messiah, you've been looking for the son of David who's going to establish the kingdom you're, you're all so legalistic and concerned about genealogies. First of all, I'm going to establish his pedigree. <laughs> first of all, I'm going to establish his lineage. And, he, and the very first thing he says is, Jesus Christ is the son of David. He is the seed of David that was prophesied back there in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that would set up the kingdom. So then we make our way to the second chapter. Okay, Jesus is born, and then those wise men come from the east, and then what do they say when they show up to see Herod? Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. Where is he that is born the king of the Jews? You see, these wise men were looking for a king. And then Herod gets all torn up because uh, there's a king that's coming that's supposedly going to take his authority. And then the, the God uh, providentially goes and protects um, protects. Um, Joseph and Mary and Jesus in, in Egypt. And then Herod goes, unfortunately, and kills all the male children two years of age. Why was he so concerned to kill all the babies? Why? Because there were some people that showed up looking for a king. <laughs> they showed up looking for a king. And isn't it so sad that those, uh, that those uh, wise men, probably from Babylon and from Chaldea, they were probably reading... Daniel chapter 2 and all these other prophecies in the scroll of Daniel, they were reading all these prophecies and they showed up looking for a king, but all the Jews that should have been looking for the king, they were just oblivious to it. And then they rejected him. Who was the people who were looking for the king? <laughs> it was these uh, children of God in Babylon, these wise men that were actually seeking the king, you see? So now in, in Matthew chapter 3, now we have Matthew's account of the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. Luke gives us the exact, um, Luke is more of a Gentile-oriented gospel, so it gives us some Gentile uh, history references to be able to cross-reference to give you the exact year. But then, again, th those Jews should have known Daniel chapter 2 really well, and some of the language there is very important, that the God of heaven would set up a kingdom. Why is it that Matthew's gospel is the only one that used the language of the kingdom of heaven? Because these Jews should have been looking for the God of heaven to set up a kingdom, you see? So what's the very first message that this forerunner of 
Jesus that came in the spirit and power of Elijah, what's the, his very first message of John the Baptist that he begins preaching? Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, the very first message. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've been looking for it. <laughs> You've been reading Daniel chapter 2 for hundreds of years that the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom, and today is the day, okay? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's within grasp. It's right here, and it's right now. And we'll come back to this. Hopefully, Lord willing, in our next message in regards to pressing into the kingdom, the very first way that you press into the kingdom is, first of all, there were some people that weren't living very godly lives, and he said, first of all, you've got to bring forth fruits, meat for repentance, but the very first step to pressing into the kingdom is baptism. The very first step is baptism into the church. Now, understand, the, king, the kingdom of heaven is a spiritual kingdom, isn't it? My kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. But you press into the kingdom... Not by just some spiritual feeling or fantasy. You don't, you, don't, you don't press into the kingdom by just an emotional feeling. How do you press into the kingdom? By you submitting and presenting yourself to the church and saying, I desire to be baptized and associate myself with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and to depict my belief in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus by me being buried in water and being resurrected to walk in newness of life. I am projecting and depicting in a public way my belief in the resurrection of Jesus by submitting to believers' baptism, okay? Now, as I said, this is a spiritual kingdom, and we experience the, the kingdom in our heart even when we're in a, this public worship setting, but it's not all just spirit and mystical feelings, okay? How do you press into the kingdom? By you physically walking up the aisle and you physically being dumped in water and coming up out of the water and being baptized exactly how Jesus did. You know, why did he do that? This is a little bit later in Matthew chapter 3. I mean, even Jesus, I mean, this gives you enough evidence right here that minimum of baptism, we can make the same argument on belief and prayers and good works and all this stuff, but especially baptism. Do you think that Jesus, when he was baptized, that's when he became the son of God? Well, no, of course not, right? He, he's been the son of God since eternity past. Why did he do that? He says in verse 15, he told John, he came, came to John and said, I, I want to be, I want you to baptize me. John the Baptist, I want you to baptize me. And John said, oh, no, of course not. Verse 14, I have need to be baptized of you. And I, I'm not going to baptize you. And then Jesus said, Suffer it now to be so, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus set a pattern. He, it was his kingdom, but he still said, I'm going to press into the kingdom by submitting to baptism. <laughs> okay? So that's the very first step. So then he is uh, baptized there. The voice from heaven comes down and says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit leads him up in the wilderness at the beginning of chapter 4 to be tempted of the devil. And then he's been baptized. He's came back from them 40 days of temptation. And now he's beginning his ministry. So what is the very first message of the Messiah's ministry? It's the very same message that John the Baptist was preaching. Repent, and notice, Jesus said a little bit later on in Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to build my church. But isn't it interesting that both John and Jesus didn't say repent for the churches here? What did they say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then you continue on to Matthew chapter 5 through 7 where Jesus essentially gives this radical new constitution of the kingdom of heaven. And you want to talk about, hopefully, Lord willing, if we continue in this line of thought, we can make our way to the Sermon on the Mount. And you need to understand just how radically different <laughs> than the environment that these Jews uh, heard growing up in the synagogue to what Jesus was preaching of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I, I'll have to go back and count these, but 
he says multiple times, ye have heard, but I say unto you. In other words, this is everything that you think. This is everything that you think religion is, but I say unto you. Okay? And he just, he just essentially put dynamite under the whole structure of the synagogue and the Pharisees. And the, why do you think they hated him so much? Because <laughs> all of a sudden, all of a sudden, these people that are listening to Jesus, they, these, uh, these uh, chief priests and the Pharisees, they really, they got there on the uh, side of the streets to pray and to give alms because they wanted to be seen of men, didn't they? And they really loved that. Well, now all of a sudden, nobody's paying attention to me. <laughs> on the side of the street when I'm, when I'm praying. No one's paying attention to me. Why? They're following this Jesus of Nazareth who's saying it's not about us praying publicly. It's about communion with God in your closet, in your heart. You uh, not telling anybody you're giving alms. You praying in secret. And all of a sudden, the crowd of the chief priests and the Pharisees, that, that's what they cared about, all of a sudden, that crowd was going away. <laughs> and boy, they didn't like it. And they sure wanted to kill the guy who was killing their, uh, their following, okay? I want to highlight <clears throat> a couple more benchmarks uh, in the ministry of Jesus. Now, that's the beginning of the ministry, okay? I, I, you can go through this, and I hope you will uh, search this on your own, that the kingdom of God and Jesus' focus on the kingdom is all throughout the Gospels and all throughout the ministry. But I want to highlight quite a few important benchmarks. That's the beginning of it. Okay, that's the beginning of the ministry. <clears throat> now, in Mark chapter 11, we have his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, seven days, on what's commonly known as Palm Sunday, 70 days, or seven days, before his crucifixion. In Mark chapter 11, <clears throat> they bring the colt to him and they put their garments upon him. And uh, verse 8, they spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before uh, and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of Now notice this language in verse 10. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And I, I believe most likely, now they were quoting some scripture there, but I think that most likely they probably didn't really understand the significance of what they were saying right there. I don't think that those people really understood <coughs> that they were confirming the prophecy that this is the seed of David that is the Messiah. I don't think they were, similar to how, uh, was it Caiaphas, the high priest, who made one of the most amazing prophecies, probably an unregenerate man, who made one of the most amazing prophecies in all the New Testament, that it's expedient that one man should die for the people. This amazing prophecy. It, words came out of his mouth as a whited sepulcher. Words came out of his mouth to the glory of God, but he had no idea <coughs> the significance of what he was saying. Uh, these people may not have even understood what they were saying, but notice what they did say, though. This is the seed of David, you see? This is the seed of David, and he's setting up this kingdom. And Jesus is, again, giving references to these kingdom, to this kingdom when he's before Pilate. My kingdom is not of this. Let's, go, let's read that real quick. John chapter 18. My kingdom is not of this world. Verse 36. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, but uh, that, that I should be delivered to, uh, to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. And then Pilate asked him directly, Art thou a king then? Are you a king? And he says, thou sayest that I am a king to this end was I born and for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth and uh, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. He says, <coughs> I came into this world because I am a king to redeem the people who were under my subjection. So then Jesus is, uh, is crucified and we know the references to the kingdom when he was on the cross too, right? The thief on the cross. Mm -hmm. Remember me when you comest into thy kingdom. And he says, today you will be with me in, in paradise. And then Jesus is resurrected. Jesus is resurrected. Um, let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 28. This is just a little bit before um, his ascension. 
In Matthew chapter 28, what's commonly known as the Great Commission here, concluding Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 28. And and this kind of brings it all full circle, right? Uh, Matthew's Gospel begins with saying Jesus is the Messiah that you've been looking for, the seed of David. And now it concludes by him giving the fulfillment of that prophecy there in Daniel chapter 2 that this kingdom is going to fill the whole earth. It's going to consume all nations. Matthew 28 and verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, right? This kingdom's going to stand forever. This kingdom's going to be here until the end of the world. And how do you press into the kingdom again? Baptism. Teach. Baptize those that respond. And then you continue to teach them. I'm setting up my kingdom. He says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, right? The God of heaven is setting up this kingdom. And this kingdom will stand until the second coming. So now let's go to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, don't you know that Jesus was going to utilize his time He only had 40 days left before he went back up to the right hand of God the Father. Don't you know that he is going to utilize his time very efficiently? He's not, he he never wasted a minute anyway, but he he is putting the highest priority on the kingdom of God because this is what these disciples, these apostles that are going, that I'm going to use, they're going to be my hands and my feet in building this church. I am trying to establish them in the kingdom of God. And he spent the 40 days after his resurrection and before his ascension, he spent it solely focused on teaching the apostles about the kingdom of God. And as we talked about last week, even if you have a perfect preacher, as Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, you can have a perfect preacher, but sometimes they still don't get it. They still don't get it. So you have this perfect preacher that's telling them, the resurrected Jesus, the perfect preacher that's teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then he says, look, you tarry, verse five, you tarry in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost comes down. And then they say, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? (laughs) Bless their heart, they still didn't get it. (laughs) They still didn't get it. But I want you to understand the importance of the kingdom of God from the beginning of Jesus' ministry all the way throughout at the triumphal entry, before Pilate, on the cross, after his resurrection, the central theme was the kingdom of God. The central theme was the church. I want to highlight a couple more verses very quickly that now speak of his ascension. Okay, so here in in, uh, Acts chapter 1, He says, he spends 40 days teaching them about the kingdom. Wait at Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost comes. He tells them in verse 8, again, uh, filling the whole earth. He says that you are going to wait till you receive power, uh, that the Holy Ghost is coming to you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria. And then the uttermost parts of the earth. What he's describing there is the kingdom consuming the whole earth. That's what he's describing. Okay? And then... If you continue on, I'd encourage you to do that if you have time. Do some searches on the kingdom of God in Acts. The kingdom of God theme continues all throughout the book of Acts. I mean, what's, what's the central theme of, uh, of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost? He says, you've been looking for the seed of David. You've been looking for the Messiah who's the seed of David. And he says, essentially, the summary of that, of that message is Jesus is the Messiah of the seed of David that you've been looking for. (laughs) That's the central theme of the message on the day of Pentecost is Jesus is the king you've been looking for, okay? And then the Lord moved in their heart for them to be able to understand that. So now, 
Let's go to uh, Revelation chapter 12 very quickly. Um, now we have this picture of Jesus being born. We talked about this in previous messages, this dragon that is Jesus working through Herod, trying to kill Jesus. And then Jesus is born, and then he is ascended up. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 12, and in verse 5, uh, she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. That's the ascension of Jesus. Now, the, uh, the uh, victory that Jesus won on the cross, the dragon is cast out. Uh, the adversary is cast down. Verse 10 of Revelation 12. Now I heard a voice in heaven. Notice a voice in heaven. This is a declaration of the kingdom of heaven from heaven. And it says, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them day and night. And then we have this picture of the dragon being cast out, being cast down from his realm of accusation and in, in the heavenly places, so to say. But then it says this dragon, in verse 17, this dragon was wroth with the woman, wroth with the church and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have testimony of Jesus Christ. Why is it so difficult to press into the kingdom? One of the main reasons is the dragon is trying to destroy the kingdom. Okay? Now this is way bigger than we have time to tackle today, but the book of Revelation gives you multiple vantage points of essentially the same story. The same story of the kingdom of heaven and the church. Just like how a movie director will tell you the story from this person's perspective and then he shifts and tells the story from this person's perspective. There are multiple perspectives that are given in the book of Revelation, but essentially they're all telling the same story, which is the beginning of church history, the beginning of the establishment of the kingdom all the way to the second coming of Jesus when the final culmination of the kingdom of heaven and us going uh, to heaven, to ever be with the Lord. It's telling the exact same story from multiple different perspectives. So essentially, what it's telling the story of is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air, the prince of the power of this world. And you have Satan battling against the church. We've been trying to consider or begin to consider on the radio spiritual warfare. We really hope to be digging into that and some of the components of that spiritual warfare that we're in. But essentially, this whole story of Revelation and to a large degree even the Bible is a conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. I mean, that, that's what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? Do you understand that? The serpent was right there in the Garden of Eden trying to destroy the perfection that God had created in his kingdom and in his garden. You see, Satan destroyed the perfection in the Garden of Eden. And isn't it good to see the way that the canon of Scripture ends up in Revelation chapter 22 where we have the restoration of the perfection of the Garden of God in the new heavens and the new earth, you see? See, that's what's great to be reminded of. You have this, this warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. But isn't it great to always, and that's, that's the story of the book of Revelation, the kingdom of darkness always loses. <laughs> Satan always loses. Why? Because of the king of kings and the lord of lords. Okay? The kingdom of darkness always loses. Let's go to um, Ephesians chapter 3 to close. <clears throat> You can turn to Daniel chapter 7 on your own. We've already talked about that. The ascension, very similar language um, to Revelation chapter 12 there. The ascension of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days, and he took the scepter of his kingdom, okay? But I want you to understand, he set up his kingdom, and that kingdom will stand forever. That kingdom will stand. And what's so special about that, I think this is in... 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he's talking about the resurrection. He says when Jesus comes back, he is not going to tear everything down and then start back over. It says that he is going to deliver up the kingdom. So everything that we have right now 
We're not going to lose any of it. It's just going to be delivered up and we're going to have full access. So the kingdom that we have right now, it's going to eventually be delivered up into the fullness of the new heavens and the new earth. But Ephesians chapter 3, after this beautiful prayer for the church, uh, for this cause I bow my knee unto the Father, that they would understand more fully your love. And there's nothing that we need to understand better and more the depth and the length and the height and the breadth of the love of Christ. There's nothing that the church needs more than that is to understand how much we are loved by Jesus Christ. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And if you'll let me use the language of what we're trying to consider this morning. Unto him be glory in the kingdom of heaven by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Again, notice the language there. Why is there glory in the church at all? Why is the glory going to be sustained? Why is the church going to be sustained? Unto him be glory in the kingdom of heaven by Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus. Throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So Jesus set up his kingdom in the days of the Roman Empire. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The church kingdom that we are called to press into. And I hope God will give us the, the zeal and the fire to seek the kingdom of God first and foremost in our life to press into that narrow way and the straight gate. Uh, uh, we're, we have a lot of obstacles that detract us from serving God as faithfully as we should. One of them being Satan that we talked about. He, he desires to quench the fruitfulness of the kingdom of heaven. But what we didn't read there in Revelation chapter 12 is they, the church, the woman, the bride, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of his testimony, okay? So it's by the enabling strength of the king <laughs> that his people are blessed to press into the kingdom and be faithful stewards of what God has given us. We need to press into the kingdom and may God bless us to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all of these blessings will be added unto us in our life of discipleship as well. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.